I'm gonna be very honest with you, honey. You're far from sane. Mm. Let's face it. I do not think that either of us would really qualify under the dictionary definition of a sane and rational human being. Let's look up sane. Do you have a dictionary? I'm sure I have one around here somewhere. Fine, let's find Oh, here, I got it right here. Oh, that's more speeches and... Oh, you over three books to the right. Red book. Red book? Red the dictionary. Let's look up. First of all, let's look up sane. Yeah. But let's look up crazy. Because, yeah. If our picture's not... Yeah, it's a concise dictionary. Obviously, our picture's not going to be but, there. But you know what I mean? Like, I want to know. Um, oh, okay, here we go, here we go. Uh, buh, 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 here we go. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, it's taking me a while to remember how to use a dictionary. Let's Not a problem. The, the order the letters Cra right. Okay, here we go, crazy. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, insane. Rickety. That's stupid as fuck. What do you mean, rickety? What, what does rickety have anything to do with it? Cause to crack in random patterns? Become crazed? I think... Cause to crack in random patterns is probably the most accurate. Let's look up same. Is this fucking dictionary blows? B -b 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 blows O's. Hey, you know what it says under primal? Hmm. Primitive, original, and most important. Interesting. I mean, I'm certainly not a psychopath by any oh, means. I, I, honey, I'm not saying. Well, you have to ask yourself that. Whenever you, whenever you say, hey, you know, it might be enough. I'm not talking in the legal definition. I'm not talking in the whether or not we should put, you know, like you up and throw away the key. You are not, I repeat one more time, not, not a psychopath, sociopath. Narcissist? Nope. Nope. Histrionic? No, you, you are not any. Borderline. Of, fuck no. You are not any of the dangerous flavors of crazy. I'm you, a lunatic. Only in the fun ways. You are what I like to think of as eccentric. I'm eccentric. Hey, why wouldn't you just leave with that? Can you say thank you for listening to the Secret Society of Stuff, please? Thank you for listening to the Secret Society of Stuff, please. Thank you. Ooh. I don't really know what happened, but I all of a sudden was in my room and and I know I said I, I so I I I sound I sound. <laughs> this is gonna sound so out there, but just bear with me. So I woke up in my room and there was like three beings. And then, and they, <laughs> do you wanna see your planet? And I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay, Jimmy Lovato. I like whooshed out of my room and was like hovering over the planet. And then all of a sudden they're like, you wanna see our planet? And I was like, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> then I whooshed to this like pink and purple planet that I've never seen, but. And then, and what? so that with the hypnotherapy, I was like trying to figure out what exactly that was. Was it like, I don't want to use the word abduction because that implies that it wasn't with consent. I was totally for it. I can't call it like an abduction. I called it an astral projection for a long time because I went somewhere else. Yeah. But then I realized maybe this was just an encounter that I had. I sound like a stoner. I think there's a common misunderstanding that, that these beings are bad because of all the movies that we've seen. No, like, it, like, has nothing to do with, like, you know, movies. And, like, of course they would, like, take you up to see a planet, you know? Like, they're doing pretty fucking awful shit to everybody else. Like, it's sharks. like we do with sharks. Yeah, you make them horrible. They're just, yeah. Yes, but I think... They've been they've, here longer. I so. think that they've been here longer, and I think that... But but I think that they're just looking out for the well-being of humanity. Like, I think that's... Oh, you're talking about sharks. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Thank you, 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 you for listening to the secret, secret society of stuff with Rob and Chad. Make sure that you, uh, uh, you know, and to do the proper vocal exercises. Serious stuff. This is showbiz, motherfucker. Yeah, no doubt. God, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I am a little bit of a narcissist. But, but so many people are doing podcasts. There must be a shitload of fucking narcissists out there. For sure. What did Lear say? He said, uh, like something like ten percent of the American population is being abducted and then i read an article the other day that said something like 10 percent of the american population have like a really really bad personality disorder like psychopathy i wonder if there's a correlation no dipshit there's no correlation there could very well be that's uh left-handed though right who me yeah i'm supposed to be left-handed um almost a psychopath almost just almost Almost, yeah my, my mother broke me of it you're not a psychopath if you're left-handed i was just fucking with rob but you, you should probably still get checked out just in case because I, i'm also not an expert also don't break your children of being left-handed if they're left-handed that's not good sorry rob I, i'm just not gonna make any jokes anymore this is terrible she she made me be right-handed <laughs> I saw this uh, this interview with this one lady who who said that she was asked to give an example of what set her apart from the rest of society, and she goes, "Well, I was working at a swimming pool once, and uh, ah, what's that fucking beeping? Shut up, Chad. That's me this time. <laughs> All right. So, so anyway, so she was at the swimming pool, and uh, she said that she saw a little baby possum uh, uh, fall into the water, and she had her net there, but she thought." While she was sitting there watching this thing struggle, it couldn't get out of the pool. She thought, yeah, but do I want it to get out? Because then it'll just get back in. I wonder if I should just drown it. And so she puts the 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 thing, the net over it, and it doesn't drown. And so she, sent, she spends like 30 minutes trying to figure out ways to drown a baby possum. And not once did it ever occur to her that she was meddling with, a, you know, a life form. It didn't it didn't occur to her they don't process empathy really at all they're taught empathy it's interesting possums are taught empathy what the fuck's going on out there bro are you breaking into a- uh my son's fucking car alarm's going off or what hey there's to turn yeah, that fucking thing off please. yeah no right yeah no shit it's fucking bad inside <laughs> <laughs> oh my god hi guys how's it going let me jump out and see if i can get this fucking car alarm to shut off and, uh, yeah, yeah no problem take a moment go ahead micah tell me about yourself man i'm chad young i'm I'm the co-host of the podcast hey chad well uh it's my pleasure to be here uh i am uh a 
person who has followed UFOs uh, since back when people still called them UFOs. But since 2020, I've been the uh, driving force, creative mind, and editor-in-chief behind the debrief.org, which uh, reports on the governmental side of all of this, which, of course, is the hot topic this week, so they tell me. So it's one of the most impressive and well-researched sites I've ever seen. <laughs> well, how many websites have you looked at, though? That's the well, yeah. Apparently, we've got a lot to discuss. And I love this isn't one of those video interviews. Those all Everybody has to do video these days. and it just Yeah, no, we're just uh, radio guys right now. Yeah, so. we're radio guys. We're, we're messing around with the idea of, of doing video, but, you know, Rob won't take all of his clothes off. He has to leave the bra on, and I'm just going to know you got to draw the line somewhere. People want to see some some skin, bro. Sometimes they do, yes. Sometimes it's necessary. It just depends, you know. Know your audience. That's the important thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, was there anything pressing that you had? To, you know, I spoke with Ross Coulthard. Coulthard, yeah, Coulthard. I sent him an email yesterday, and he got back to me and said that this is going to be one of the most interesting weeks in in UFO history because of this professional hearing. And he called it a couple of weeks ago. He called it. He said that it's going to happen. Yeah. Ross, yeah, Ross has really risen to kind of uh, a position of being, you know, one of the journalistic authorities, I think we can say on this subject. He's been following this, obviously, for many years. But, you know, also being someone who maybe wasn't so entrenched in the UFO subject, that he comes to it with all of his biases and all of his decisions and all of his, you know, speculations in hand. You know, Ross really came into this debate uh, looking at it objectively, and that's why I enjoyed his book so much. In fact, I let me tell you how much I enjoyed Ross's book. I bought the book, but then I also got the audio version of it, primarily yeah. just so I could hear him reading it. And I'll tell you folks at home, if you haven't listened to Ross narrating in plain sight, it is a, a joy a, a, an entirely separate experience apart from reading the book because he is a very, very gifted narrator and and there's a, a lot of humor too at times when he's going into the characters and, you know, quoting some of the people throughout the book that he uh, sources. But all that said, yeah, he, he certainly is somebody who's got his ear to the ground. And I also love the, uh, the work that he and Bryce Zabel are doing together right now, uh, you know, in their mutual effort with the uh, podcast, Need to Know with Zabel and Coulthard. So, those guys are just rocking and rolling these days. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a real challenge cutting him off during the, the podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he's very charming. <laughs> so well-spoken and his, his, his yeah, you know, sure. was excellent. I learned like 12 new words talking to him. You know, like, I mean, was, you know, <laughs> I mean really, it was incredible. Um, and I thought that he would be more of an ETH proponent, not um, – the IDH. I thought that the interdimensional hypothesis would be furthest from his wheelhouse, but that's where he seems to have ended up. Which is interesting in itself, although I'll note, historically speaking, a lot of researchers kind of follow that path. That doesn't surprise me entirely. I mean, if you look back to the 1960s, uh, and even before that in the 1950s, you know, you had the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena out of Washington, uh, whose original leader was not, but really its best known leader. Uh, eventually was appointed, and that was uh, Donald Kehoe. Under Kehoe, whose, you know, books included, you know, aliens from space, yeah, right, and, and flying saucers are real, and, you know, other titles uh, of books and articles and things that he had done. I mean, it had really been Kehoe in a lot of ways who single-handedly, whether or not this had really been his intention, 
he single-handedly sold the extraterrestrial hypothesis to a, I wouldn't call it an eager public. It was a public that was interested in, okay, are there Soviet surveillance platforms flying over America? Is the Air Force, you know, which at the time was a newly established separate branch of the military apart from the Army, uh, before that it had been the Army Air Force, which in fact, when you go back and listen to the old recordings uh, that accompanied the purported crash of a flying disc at Roswell, if you go back and listen to the original recordings, they say, you know, at uh, Roswell Army Air Field, you know, this was actually back uh, when we still had the U.S. Army Air Force. Well, anyway, all that said, uh, once the Air Force takes up the mantle of looking into UFOs, they were, of course, at first fairly open to any possibilities, but the last thing they would have concluded was, and yes, aliens are visiting. No, they were worried about Soviet technologies, things like this. They quickly concluded this isn't anything of ours. Donald Kehoe, on the other hand, said that was already evident. Guys, it's obvious what we're dealing with. There's no other alternative. It's E.T. or go home. And so right. all those things considered, you know, when Kehoe really got into the game and started driving that E.T. narrative, again, maybe kind of showing his own biases and suppositions. This was a logical conclusion for him, but really there wasn't enough evidence then, nor is there enough now to say conclusively that's all this could be, although people say that all the time. Uh, but Kehoe really starts selling that to the public, and I think that it was uh, thereafter that as he comes into leadership with NICAP, the largest civilian UFO investigative group also starts kind of saying, well, you know, we'll hold out to possibilities, but really this is what seems most likely uh, for right now. And and that again, that, that kind of continues for years until you start having people like John Keel, 1966 or so, he gets into the game and says, I'll figure this all out in a couple of years. And after his preliminary investigations concluded, after about a couple of years of nonstop, every day, seven days a week, no vacations, working on UFOs, and by that, of course, collecting reports, interviewing witnesses, doing ground investigations himself, but collecting newspaper clippings, interviewing the reporters who were reporting on this, you know, throughout the country, talking with military leadership, you know, actually liaisoning and interviewing uh, with members of Blue Book and, you know, all of these things that a good UFO researcher in his day should have done, he too begins to conclude, you know, whatever's going on here, it just doesn't seem so simple as aliens surveying our planet. There's just this wacky aspect to this that seems to bespeak something much more complex. And around the time he's coming to those conclusions, we also, we also have Jacques Vallée, who had been one of those early scientific proponents of, hey, maybe E.T.'s coming to Earth, and they're checking us out. Well, he too starts moving away from that. And so the point is, Many researchers over the years, beginning really first with Keel and with Valet, but many more since then have done the same. They really maybe start off going, okay, sure, there's a phenomenon here. Sure, ET, likely possibility as far as explaining it. And the deeper they get, the less inclined they are to necessarily hold that opinion and they move away from it. Not everybody does that. Those guys certainly did. And hence, I'm not really surprised that in the modern dialogue, someone like Ross Coulthard, who has really kind of approached it like Keel did in some ways, he kind of comes into it with a fresh perspective, you know, unlike a lot of his contemporaries who are in this UAP dialogue nowadays. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that Ross would be more of an outside-the-box thinker. I think his writing shows that already. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The, the only problem with, with all of that is that <clears throat> is that these, you know, when you go from uh, Kehoe to Keel to Valet, I mean, of course, Keel is like Valet who just did too much DMT and then went to like a, I don't know, joined up as a Mason or something. I mean, his stuff is out there, dude. Totally yeah. cult, 
I mean, just wonderful to read. I mean, it really expands your your mind when you read it. But but it, it's it seems like the further you go out from Roswell, which which actually didn't start in you know July of 1947. It was it, it started really in 1941, and it was this flap that lasted you know eight or nine years. Um, and it 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 after that it seems like things just kind of went ape shit and and yeah you're right the eth just didn't fit anymore but i think that it did during that initial flap does that make sense certainly and one of the reasons why being of course the technological limitations at that time we hadn't put people on the moon yet we hadn't even sent people into space at that point you know our best scientists were still speculating about what would happen if we actually tried to put living organisms on a spacecraft, send them through the radiation belts that we had only fairly recently discovered actually surrounded our planet. And so, you know, there were a lot of unknowns. And what's really neat is when you go back and you look at some of the UFO writing of that era, and this also included Kehoe, but I mean, I'm even talking about some of the speculations that were coming out of the government investigative efforts at that time. You know, they had said it's possible that these flying disks are surveillance craft, and that there's a mothership parked outside of Earth's atmosphere, and that they are, you know, sending these essentially what we would call drones today down into Earth's atmosphere so that they can survey the landscape for us, you know, take a, take a you know, a snapshot of what's happening here on Earth. Again, that kind of notion was colored at the time by our uncertainty about what happened to living organisms who tried to travel through those radiation belts, and, you know, really about our our lack of understanding with regard to space travel in some total. So it's kind of fascinating when you go back and you read those, you know, early suppositions and we begin to realize just, you know, how limited our thinking was. But now for my own part, I'll just say this guys, you know, the ET hypothesis, you know, it may come and go in terms of whether it is a favorable idea. Uh, one uh, kind of new perspective on that that I'm seeing in a lot of the modern dialogue is people saying, you know, these things could be extraterrestrial technology, but that doesn't mean that they are visitors per se. They could be drones. They could be autonomous surveillance technologies that were sent here by an advanced civilization, and they wouldn't necessarily have to travel here. That's one way we can kind of get over all of these problems that are concomitant with the idea of biological organisms traveling the distances between star systems and what have you. But here again, if we, you know, take the old idea of past is prologue and look back at the past, you know, just a few decades ago, how our thinking was colored at that time by the limitations of our technological understanding and our scientific understanding of the universe, I, I really think it very well may be the case that we are approaching the phenomenon with an all new set of suppositions based on our limitations, not on our advancement. You know, 100 years from now, if we're still working on the UFO issue or the UAP problem, call it what you want, I wonder if we're going to have a whole, you know, an entirely new toolkit of biases, presuppositions, you know, and foregone conclusions that we're throwing at this phenomenon. That's almost surely going to be the case if we haven't solved it by them, because that seems to be the pattern. You know, we, we keep launching all these expectations at the phenomenon, and we keep getting nowhere. Really, I think we should probably step back, kind of like Ross and a lot of other thinkers have begun to do, and maybe not be so sure we know what these things are. But at least all that said, I would like to say also that the ET hypothesis should not necessarily be ruled out either. 
nor should necessarily the idea that biological entities uh, could be involved in some of these cases. And really, one main reason I say that is because of the, you know, the sightings by those witnesses who have experienced, you know, landed craft and what they perceived as being the occupants actually leaving the vehicles. Uh, Randall Nickerson has recently put out this, you know, very good documentary about the Ariel School uh, that uh, involved a multiple witness encounter where school children observed uh, a it landed craft. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Was that the Australia or Zimbabwe incident? I believe that's the Zimbabwe incident, although I think that there was also one in yeah, Australia. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the Zimbabwe area school incident. And just go ahead, I'm sorry, keep going. Well, no, I, you know, I merely referenced that. And again, Randall's uh, video is very, very good. Everyone should, should watch that, the uh, documentary he's produced. Uh, but I referenced that because, again, you know, if we look at cases like that, where we have multiple witnesses who say that they saw individuals, beings outside of some kind of a landed craft, there are plenty of those from over the years. And, you know, again, that definitely does seem to be suggestive of there being an actual piloted, you know, occupied presence, not just autonomous drones. And so, you know, even though today we're kind of approaching the subject differently, if we go back to the 1950s and we look at the, oh, you know, the saucers could be coming down from a mothership just to kind of survey the landscape. We were talking about drones back then too. So really there are no new ideas under the sun, nor in my opinion, should we rule out the old ideas necessarily? ET hypothesis, still a possibility, but one of many. You were talking about spaceflight and what we did not know. Well, what we do know now is that spaceflight is incredibly dangerous for human beings. It's terrible on our circulatory systems. It destroys red blood cells, and the damage continues even after the astronauts return home. Not only that, but the the those filament areas in between the the, the brain, you know, those those pockets of fluid that, that keep it steady, um, slowly shrink and shrivel. Now there is like a homeostasis that occurs once you're in space for a long enough period of time, because it's, it's you're essentially in a free fall, you know. For there's no really other way to put it for however many months you're in, in space. But again, I, God, I hate to keep bringing this book up, but it's, it's the only one that really makes sense now. In the day after Roswell, Corso describes these creatures as having a lymphatic fluid rather than red blood cells. And I always thought that that was strange. He also said that the, 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 the makeup of their brain was not like the makeup of our brain. It was more of a crystalline structure. And there were no fissures in between the, the brain compartments, or you know, I don't know, I forget what those things are called. They're called lobes, dipshit, lobes. Um, it, it's, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, it, maybe we are getting somewhere. Maybe the breadcrumbs that have been left are just enough for us to make some presuppositions. And that's ultimately where we need to be, you know? Yeah, those are really interesting observations that you make there because, again, you know, I'm, <laughs> while I actually fundamentally call myself a skeptic, I'm someone who always advocates trying to, you know, look at all the data. I think it's really important to look at everything you can. But, I mean, I see so many, you know, alleged arguments against, uh, for instance, if we look at uh, UFO landing cases, uh, you know, many modern physicists would say, the idea that any of these, you know, craft 
uh, that people claim to see, uh, that this could represent alien visitation is so increasingly small. And based upon one simple fact, the likelihood that other intelligent life in this universe, that it would in any way resemble us, i.e. a humanoid shape, is infinitesimally small. I mean, so minute that it's impossible, essentially. And I'm thinking always when I hear, you know, scientists or anybody else make this supposition, because that's what it is, I always think to myself, how do you know that? Yeah, how, how do you know that? I mean, we, we have evolutionary science, and we, and we have, you know, astrobiologists, and we have scientists who are looking at these possibilities. And what is that all reflective of? What is it all influenced by? The golden ring. Well, yeah. Mathematics. <laughs> well, that's the only universal tool that we seem to have that really, without having to go to the extreme far reaches of the universe ourselves and observe what life on planets, if it exists, might be like, you know, those mathematic tools are essentially the only things that we have at our disposal. And certainly, you know, that also applies to physics. But at the end of the day, you know, when we take math and we take physics out of the equation, although really you can't, I mean, those things also govern things like gravity. But I mean, the point I'm trying to make is that our only experience actually observing biology, it occurs right here on Earth. The brilliant assumptions about what life on other planets should look like are just that they're assumptions. We only have one thing to base that off of, which is our experience with life on this planet. And that, of course, is inherently limited. Now, we can certainly learn some things. Physics applies. Mathematics applies. You know, the way that gravity is exerted on a living organism on another planet, if it's especially, you know, close to the same size of Earth or what have you, and other conditions environmentally are similar to a planet like Earth, yeah, we could probably assume that there are going to be some similarities. But then again, one could also argue that with the range of diversity we've seen on planet Earth throughout time, and what we see you know, in the fossil record that is evidence of this, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily conclude that everything that we would expect to see on another planet would be so different from us. If anything, the diversity on Earth, to me, shows uh, that we have a pretty good array of different kinds of life, and we have seen a lot of different examples of how it takes shape and evolves. And yet, you know, here we have on Earth, you know, hominins, which includes humans and our, you know, now extinct, presumably extinct ancestors like Neanderthals, Denisovans, some of whom actually weren't so much ancestors as they were cousins because they lived alongside us during the last ice age. But the point being that, you know, for the longest stretch in, in history where we have had, you know, significantly intelligent organisms that have given rise to civilization, you know, complex societies, architecture, and what have you, and, you know, high technology capable of actually traveling to the stars— you know, we have essentially one model that appears to have worked in all the history of Earth, and that is the humanoid form. So maybe we shouldn't necessarily rule out the idea that on other planets, evolution may take place and in similar ways, which might give rise to similar looking organisms. So, you know, in a way, I'm not surprised at all that some who claim to have observed the occupants of UFOs have said, and you know what, they looked an awful lot like us. Maybe actually, in terms of evolutionary biology, planetary biology and what have you, that makes all the sense in the world or, you know, somebody's world. Somebody's world. Wow. Yeah, Not yeah. necessarily ours. Yep. And you have to wonder how much, and you know, I know that you're, you, you try and keep a skeptic bent at all times, but you have to wonder how much of this 
information has been obfuscated from the public. And I'm not talking about just, you know, cleverly hidden. I'm talking about just mean disinformation that has been allowed to, you know, soak and marinate in the, the consciousness of the people. And I wonder what kind of damage that has done, not just to the, the perception of, of this phenomenon, but to a, a psychosocial level of, of humanity in general. I mean, the, the government has shown time and time again, it, it has no care whatsoever for individual life. It only cares for the, you know, the very, very, you know, vague idea of the American life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I do know. I mean, there have been, of course, insinuations, and this extends well beyond just, you know, UFO studies. There have been a lot of insinuations about the kinds of things that government groups, agencies, and programs within those agencies have done what they've carried out, what lengths they would go to in the, you know, broader effort to try and ensure national security. Uh, I think we can safe it to say that there have been some pretty terrible things done. You know, the immediate example that comes to mind that's maybe a non-ufological uh, reference would be MK Ultra. There you go. I mean, here we have this situation where uh, there were illegal experiments carried out on unwitting American citizens. You know, in the case of Frank Olson, one of the early casualties of the MKUltra program, at least as far as the ones that we know about, we also had a government employee who was a, you know, who was subjected to some of this experimentation and presumably also either claimed his own life. I think that's the official narrative, but of course... Uh, a lot of the evidence supports the idea that he may have been helped in that effort. In any case, you know, here we have a government employee who'd been involved with the program and who had been looking for a reporter he could go to and talk about this. And, well, we saw what happened to him. But then think of all the individuals, you know, members of, you know, various minority communities in the United States who didn't know that they were being, you know, given drugs laced with other substances who didn't know that they were being brought into, you know, areas where they were being secretly surveilled while they were carrying out activities, you know, that were part of the nightlife at that time. LGBTQ, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, uh, community back then were especially targeted. Mm -hmm. uh, addicts were, were targeted, addicts, people who had no control of their impulse control systems were targeted. It was pretty screwed up what the kind of who they thought was a low life back then. And, and you have to wonder, who do they think is a low life now? Well, yeah. And, you know, again, then you get into some of these cases, and there's an interesting kind of connection, really. Although I don't try to say that MKUltra was in any way explicitly connected with UFOs. There have been some authors who have looked at the history of UFOs and have made some of those connections. Maybe there have been some authors who have looked at the history of MKUltra and also seen some of those connections. But, you know, one potential that comes to mind involves the case of a guy named Jerry Irwin, uh, who had you know been a member of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, he'd actually had a security position, I believe, at a, at a, a missile launch site, but he'd been trying to make his way uh, back to base after a weekend of travel. And, you know, it was a strange set of circumstances because his recollection had been that he's driving along, and it was already so late that he wouldn't have made it back to base in time anyway, but he's driving along and he claims he sees this strange light pass over his car as he's driving and so he stops his car, he takes black shoe polish, and he writes on the side of his vehicle, you know, I think there's a downed aircraft gone to help. I think he actually, what he writes in shoe polish is stop along the side of his vehicle to get other motorists 
to stop who would see that on his car. And then he wrote a handwritten note, which he attached to the window saying, I've gone up the hill to investigate a crashed aircraft. They find him, you know, a trucker and some others stop and they, they go up the hill and they find him laying face down in the snow. And he doesn't remember what happened. Although shortly after this experience, he had spoken to the sheriff of one of the nearby towns who'd been, you know, in charge of this investigation and told him that he'd seen this light go over the hill he hikes to the top of the hill, and before he gets to the top of the hill, he can still see the light emanating from the other side. Whatever's going on over there, it's still producing light, and he expected a plane had crashed, and it was the fire of this plane. Well, it's later revealed there was no plane crash. His jacket's missing, and he tells this story eventually of going back to base and you know being provided uh, I think it was sodium fentanyl, I believe was the name of the substance. You know, essentially he was administered a sort of, you know, a substance that was t- intended to aid him in telling the truth. And uh, and there were all it's these scopolamine. other. Yeah, scopolamine. It also helps with uh, not remembering shit. Yeah, right. Well, and see, that's where things start getting weird, because in Irwin's story, uh, it ended up you know, coming to the attention of the uh, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization carried, uh, you know, overseen by Jim and Coral Lorenzen. And they essentially were convinced that Irwin might have had some kind of encounter with a landed UFO. Anyway, that's a story for another time. But, you know, the point I want to, you know, emphasize about it right now is the fact that Irwin, you know, he goes AWOL and a lot of people thought he stayed gone. But it, it actually turns out he showed up, you know, many years later. And David Boer is a researcher who recently, within the last few years, wrote a book about this, went out there, uh, met Irwin spoke to him at his home. Uh, Irwin didn't remember anything about what was on the other side of that hill. He recalled going AWOL. And he also, you know, had spotty memories of what happened at the time. But again, one of Boer's conclusions was that there may not have been a UFO component at all, that these introduction or these memories might have been introduced rather by uh, personnel, military personnel during those you know, so, uh, sessions after the incident, whatever it had happened. And so, you know, again, it's it's a strange case that kind of blurs the lines between UFOs and MK Ultra. And there are a few other instances of things like that from over the years. But again, safe it to say, you know, whether it has to do with that, whether it has to do with what we know about the MK Ultra program and the fact that, you know, the I believe the Central Intelligence Agency attempted to purge their files about it, all those things seem to point to something that they would rather us not know about. And that's a real problem, and it has been in U.S. culture and, of course, in government for a very long time, you know. Uh, our, our interests, the interests of national security and, you know, the American way of life all necessarily aligned at all times? I really don't think they are, and it's kind of sad. Yeah. And you also have to remember where, you know, this, you have to remember where all these organizations came from. I mean, the, the CIA was seeded with, with uh, scientists from from. Germany. I mean, Paperclip brought them all over, and of course they were put into programs like that. Of course they were. I mean, look at the the, the files that we did recover from MK Ultra. Uh, MK often was uh, set to to, uh, to study the uh, the mind uh, control uh, possibilities from occult uh, societies, uh, from worship of whatever it is they worship. And, but you know, the Germans were kind of already starting to look at that through the you know, mesmerizing effects of, of fascism and, and Nazism and all that stuff. So, of course, they wanted to figure out why that was so successful. I mean, you can see the the, 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 
the seeds had already been planted. We're just carrying the, the bushes over into our society, you know, granted under a different name. Um, but yeah, those scientists, they didn't, they didn't care about human life. And as they passed away, the German scientists who didn't give a shit about anything, slowly but surely the, the CIA and the, the NSA got their soul back. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, perhaps, uh, you know, there, it's a double edged sword, because, you know, there are, of course, the arguments that there are some of those Nazi paperclip scientists, you know, because again, some of the paperclip scientists, that was our name for the program. But, you know, Nazi scientists that, that came to the United States, many of them went to work for, you know, the, uh, I guess, what became known thereafter as NASA, but they went to work in our aerospace programs, you know, in Huntsville, Alabama, we had uh, Hermann Oberth, and of course, more famously, Ver, uh, Werner von Braun, but I mean, Oberth had really kind of been uh, the granddaddy of rocketry and, and, uh, you know, Von Braun sort of one of his, you know, protégés, but, uh, Von Braun being younger, of course, you know, had a longer career in the space program. He'd also been a member of the SS. Uh, some of these guys though, the argument had been, and in fact, Oberth had written this in his journals that he designed rockets to carry men to the moon. They were supposed to go off planet, not to go up into the air and then come back down and destroy things. Uh, and no doubt many who were employed as scientific, you know, technical minds within the Third Reich, they didn't necessarily love what Hitler did. And in fact, many of them hated it, but uh, they nonetheless, because they were Germans at the time, you know, had been tapped in this in this government effort. Uh, and, and many of them came to the United States thereafter, worked for us, and they, you know, they would say this. They said, you know, we had no love lost for Hitler. Uh, or his objectives. There had been some controversy, though, because there had been people who had claimed that they'd seen von Braun, you know, during the war while he was an SS member. Others had pointed out historians that, you know, the rank he held and the position you know, was a relatively non-effectual one. Uh, and then, yeah, you also had some of the Nazi scientists who had done deplorable things, and presumably some of them also came back to work not only for the United States, but the Soviets after the war. Others, according to some, depending on which conspiracy theory book you're reading, you know, might have gone and, uh, you know, nested themselves comfortably within the World Bank and and the world banking and financial institutions. And, you know, they they found their safe haven there. But in any case, uh, yeah, that was the hollow uh, moon. And of course, uh, the, the deep and warm uh, sunlit caverns of, uh, of uh, the, the South Pole. Was it the South Pole or the North Pole? South Pole. Well, the South Pole is where they allegedly went. Uh, but there were a lot of, you know, Nazi bases that were more uh, oriented toward the northern climbs. And again, you really, the idea there, it was pretty simple. It was, you know, having a, a strategic point from which, you know, aerospace weapons could be launched uh, and essentially travel a short distance and reach any place in the in, in the world. Uh, yeah, to any, yeah. So, I mean, naturally... Both the Nazis and, of course, also the Allies were eventually moving toward trying to exploit polar regions uh, as strategic points that would be advantage, uh, you know, or uh, you know, advantageous, we might say, in the furtherance of the war effort. Fortunately, it didn't get to that point, but they also went and explored and found out how damned cold it was and how difficult it would be to actually carry out operations down there. Can I ask you a question? Certainly. What is the most shocking thing that you can think of that might be true? Uh, you know, I would have to say, actually, that, and, and I don't necessarily mean Roswell, but I, I do think that the allegations, the ongoing allegations that there have been some level of recovery 
let's say, of you know a, apparently advanced uh, non-terrestrial craft. That idea is really that would be really shocking if it ever actually came to light. Let's put it that way. And you know, again, I, a lot of people for a long time, and some still today, look at Roswell as a smoking gun. You know, this is the be-all, end-all. And we want to know what they've got and how long they've had it and how long they hit it, at, you know, right Patterson Air Force Base, where the bodies are kept on ice. You know, based on my reading of the Roswell incident, I really am not inclined to think that that necessarily was a, you know, actually crashed UFO incident. And one reason I will say that is because, again, this didn't come to light for many, many decades uh, at the time of the Roswell incident. But, the you know, the, the chain of, you know, the, the narrative is essentially that, you know, Army you know, collects crash disc out there right on ranchers property, the story of Matt Brazel. And then the next day they say, Oh, you know what? It was a weather balloon. And a lot of people are like, okay, well, no story here. Let's move along. It didn't come out until many decades later in 1980. The research actually began a couple of years before that. Uh, you had William Moore and you had Stanton Friedman that began to kind of reinvestigate this case after I believe, um, it had been Stanton Friedman who first uh, learned of Jesse Marcel. He had been doing a television interview in like 1978 or 1979, maybe probably would have been uh, closer to 77 or 78, considering that the book doesn't come out until 1980. But long story short, you know, somebody says, you need to talk to this guy. He lives here in town. And he says, he remembers that, you know, that crash that occurred. And <clears throat> this of course was it's Jesse Marcel. I'm sorry. Gerald or Glenn that he talked to. Well, he, he went on to talk with uh, Glenn Davis, I believe. And then, of course, there was also Gerald, uh, whose last name slips my mind, uh, who claimed to have been a child at the time that he saw this. But no, Jesse Marcel had been the guy that he spoke to first. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But the point is, again, Marcel never said that there were alien bodies or anything. He said, yeah, there was an object. And, you know, I, I remember being out there and picking up the wreckage. And I didn't think that thing was one of ours. And I had to know what all the different aircraft we were at that time or what we had at that time. So, you know, the original story that comes out about Roswell is, yeah, something crashed and the military collected it. It wasn't until many years later, thanks to guys like Glenn Davis and others, you know, when they come out and start saying, yeah, you know, I went down there and I talked to that mortician and she said there was something, some sort of a body they were cutting up and she was so, you know, upset. Anyway, long story short, you know, the idea, this motif of a crash out there in the southwestern desert had existed for years. A researcher named Leonard Stringfield had really done a lot of work into this. But he, of course, starts finding all of these different conflicting accounts. You know, the research community initially tried to kind of look at all these claims about a crash and narrow them down and say, OK, maybe this person doesn't quite remember it right. Maybe this person got the year wrong. Is there some way we can start to kind of take all these accounts and, you know, throw out the really crazy ones, take the ones that are sort of similar and narrow this down to a single incident that involved a crash that occurred in the desert, maybe the recovery of bodies. That seems to be what they tried to come back around with the old Roswell story and do. But I mentioned that there was something that really sort of, to me, changes that narrative. And it was what came to light decades later from the FBI, the FBI document from like the day after the purported crash. But this from before the Roswell Daily Record changes the story and other newspapers carry the thing about the Air Force saying it was now a weather balloon. The original FBI document said, indeed, it seems some kind of balloon had crashed, not a flying disc, which actually is a good fit for the mogul story that came out only decades later. So I actually think that the FBI probably had the story 
you know, correct early on based on their intel. That didn't come out, in, you know, to the public until much later. But again, from day one, we can say that the FBI had been aware of the fact that there was a secret high altitude uh, balloon project. Well, which every, Everybody was aware that there was a, an, a high altitude balloon. Everyone knew what the balloon train looked like. And in fact, from from records obtained from the Air Force, we now know that it couldn't have been Project Mogul. It literally could not have been. They kept detailed records. And the, the balloon that they attributed the crash to never launched. It never launched. And moreover, even if it had, certainly the base commander who went to go look at the wreckage would have known what it is he was looking at. So none of that makes sense to me. Well, yeah, that's one argument. Again, researcher Brad Sparks painstakingly went through all of the mogul launches, and he said that, again, that they, they didn't seem to line up with the expected circumstances that would have facilitated the crash. And again, keep in mind, I also have some problems with the official Air Force attempt at trying to reconcile all of these different stories. But my broader point is simply this. There have been these legends about a crash well in advance of the Roswell story being kind of reignited and looked at as a UFO incident in the 1980s. I'm not so sure that it is the smoking gun that many make it out to be, although indeed it could be something other than what the Air Force and uh, the official explanation that has been offered seems to entail. But all that said, and back to your main question, you know, even though there are still questions about Roswell, if that ever came out and if it ever were, you know, there were indisputable evidence and, you know, there were an official acknowledgement. Okay, look, we've kept this under wraps for years. We were worried about what it would do to, you know, religion, what it would do to you know, people's faith in society and government. But with all this interest in UFOs, you know, people haven't lost their shit yet. So we're going to come out and just tell you the truth. Yeah, we've got a, an actual vehicle. There were bodies. One of them lived. We tried to communicate with the thing. They were studied. You know, there wasn't an exchange program, but yeah, we actually tried to replicate these vehicles and the so-called alien reproduction vehicles do exist. Some of them are ours. That to me would be extraordinary if it were true, if it were proven. That that to me, I think would be the most extraordinary thing because again, it would confirm all of these, you know, conspiracies and counter conspiracies and narratives that we've been hearing about for more than half a century. And, and we still don't really have a clear picture on all of that. Right. Right. We really do not. And, and you have to wonder, will we ever? I mean, look at look at Britain, where, where a monarchy is still in place. They've made actual government research of certain sightings, like the one in Scotland, uh, unavailable for another 80 years. I mean, come on, man. This is crazy. We know what's happening. Something is happening. We don't, know if it's we don't know if it's interdimensional, but we're not idiots. We need to know what's going on. It's really bizarre to me. And again, this is where we get into the whole thing about, uh, you know, unnecessary secrecy. Uh, you know, the, the, the classified version of the June 2021 ODNI report, you know, preliminary assessment, unidentified aerial phenomena. I mean, if you look at the classified version that was obtained by researcher John Greenwald just a few weeks back, it's absurd to me some of the things that they completely took out in the sanitized public version. And then... You know, when John, he he didn't just follow regular FOIA. He had to follow a mandatory declassification review, which essentially, uh, and that's a little complex when you got a report like that one, because even though it was produced by a small, like two-person task force under the cognizance of the Department of the Navy, but then, of course, that was, you know, presented by the, uh, and, and of course, published at the website of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, currently, of course, a position held by Avril Haines. 
that report drew from information from, you know, a large number of intelligence agencies, one of which, by the way, was, you know, any mention of it was completely removed from the classified document and the public version. I mean, it literally had been removed once that goes to print the classified version, once it's released to John Greenwald, because what they have to do is they have to send the information back to all the agencies and clear for release, have them re-review the data and determine what can and cannot be released from each of those independent agencies. And then, of course, they can actually clear the FOIA request so that a redacted version, having passed through the mandatory declassification review, uh, is, you know, is approved for release. So it comes out, he gets his copy. Now they have, and this is hilarious to me, the agency that was completely removed is now blacked out. So now we know that they'd intentionally removed the name of one agency, which I'm sure wasn't the CIA, by the way. But, no. but you know, I mean, so now we know that they had taken that out. This entire section and furthermore, every reference throughout the document to what the Navy calls range foulers. A range fowler is an incident involving basically an object or event that occurs in airspace, probably uh, during a training exercise most commonly, and it interrupts the, the planned training mission. And so this is essentially what they call a range fowler. This, for whatever reason, had been completely removed from the version that was released to the public. And yet when they when they do the review and they release the classified version, every reference to that had been left in. They didn't. So I'm, it, it makes you wonder if you didn't have to remove it from the classified version at all, wasn't redacted, you know, wasn't wasn't removed. I mean, then why did you take it out in the first place? And, and so, again, there's a very good argument here to be made that a lot of UFO data that is being withheld from the public is probably just like what we saw in the classified version that was ultimately released. It's, it's mundane stuff that the public would have no problem knowing about. It doesn't affect national security for people to know about these things. But arbitrary, unnecessary secrecy by government leads to the removal of that before a document like that is released to the public. It does affect national security, not the information, but the secrets themselves have now eroded the public's trust so much in our government that if it ever did come out, it wouldn't be about UFOs. We wouldn't give a shit about UFOs. We wouldn't care if thousands of them just appeared. It, it should be, who cares? I mean, you saw the reaction. The ufologists were excited, but nobody else was. Nobody gave a shit. Actually, to the contrary, now, now let me play devil's advocate. You know, a lot of people who don't follow UFOs, they were amazed by that because they're like, hold on, wait, wait, wait. You mean all this nonsense that the hillbillies have been talking about for decades? You mean that our government takes this seriously and that they say there really are objects that we've never seen? So, I mean, some actually kind of saw it the opposite way. UFO researchers, who you'd think would be very excited about this, some of them also were like, ah, this isn't anything we didn't already know. Because again, in, in truth, there wasn't much new data for the UFO researchers. But to your point, yeah, I would say the majority of people who were really excited about the report, yeah, they were UFO enthusiasts. And people who didn't care about UFOs, they looked at that report and they're like, uh, drones, okay, whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. You know, you also have to take into account, and this is probably the most shocking thing of all, are, are the events that happened prior to Roswell and directly after when Truman signed the National Security Act. But I mean, that was signed, what, a, a couple of months after uh, Roswell happened. But, but it also seems that they were set up to deal with this stuff. 
I mean, granted, you know, the base officers, a little faux pas with telling the, the newspaper, but that's just, they, they should have informed their officers a little bit better. I'm talking about Maury Island, entire flap in 1947 of all of the different craft that were everywhere in the United States of America. Seven days after Roswell on 14th of July, Carl Wartanen discovered, that's in quotations, a Mars crosser. It wasn't the sun. It was a, it was a Mars crosser. And it was 1947 NH provisional or 1747 right. But it was discovered 17 years earlier by a man named William Hammond Wright and covered up by government officials. I think that that object has something to do with Roswell. I think that someone knew what was out there, the possibility of what was out there. And certainly during the flap, they most certainly were on high alarm. So yeah, I think, I think we've probably nabbed a few of these things. It's possible. It certainly is possible. Uh, I can't speak to the uh, the Mars Crosser. That's an interesting incident. It reminds me a little of a, a incident that had been recorded much earlier that Fort wrote about, about an object, again, what we would maybe call a transient object in orbit around Venus. And this kind of does happen from time to time. In fact, back there in the 1950s, there were some objects that were in orbit around the Earth that we did not believe um, were the result of our failed rocket launches. I've been searching and seeking, afraid to really find the peace that I wanted. Oh Lord, I've been blind. The Oh uh-huh.